God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story in particular. I know it means a lot to me as well. I thank you for your grace and your beautiful presence this morning. You're welcoming. For being God, sometimes I just feel like you're so non-judgmental of me. Yet you are holy. So I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the blood he shed that enabled us to come into your presence. And I pray, God, that you would uplift Gordy this morning, that everything that you have put on his heart this morning would come out in a clear way and that we would be able to receive it with open hearts. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <coughs> awesome. So we, if you're just joining us today for the first time, we're going through a series entitled Expanding the Table in response to an invitation we have felt from the Lord this year to... Um, to make more room, and what we mean by that, we've 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 kind of have this summary sentence: more and better disciples, an authentic missional community for the good of the world. And so there needs to be adjustments in our hearts and thinking to make room. And our text today uh, again informs us, I believe, very powerfully on the need to leave our comfort zones in order to embrace the other. This is an invitation that God is giving us this year. And I've already mentioned the story of St. Patrick. Um, and this whole idea of leaving our comfort zones in order to embrace the other is not just for the sake of more disciples. We need this. We need this to be disciples. We need this to posture ourselves. There's two seas in Israel, as many of you have heard the illustration probably many times. There's the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, and we'll look at those seas today. The Sea of Galilee uh, had the Jordan River, has a river flowing into it, and a, the Jordan River flows out of it, and there's all kinds of fish uh, in that sea, but the Dead Sea has no life in it because the water only comes in one way. And so there's this invitation from God that if we're going to be able to stay fresh, it's not just a matter of being receiving, but in a place of giving. And so our story today takes us to that. And we're looking at the book of John, chapter 4. And you'll remember last week, Jesus was very early in his ministry. He was just starting. And he had taken his first trip to Jerusalem. And John gives us insights into Jesus' life and ministry that we don't get in the other three Gospels, in Luke, Matthew, and Mark. John, I think many people believe that John wrote his book years after the other Gospels came out. And they'd been circulating for a good 20 to 30 years, and he went, hey, there's a whole bunch of stories that haven't been told yet. And so that's John's book. And so a lot of John is giving us the, the early part of Jesus' ministry that we don't see in the other Gospels. And there was this very early trip he took to Jerusalem where he cleansed the temple the first time, where he was a one-man wrecking crew in terms of the kingdom of darkness. He was just on a healing rampage. And then he met Nicodemus and had that incredible encounter with the, the religious, this leader of the Sanhedrin who became a hero in, in Jesus' burial and, and saved him from Gehenna, saved him from being, his body from being thrown into the garbage dump at his death very courageously stepped forward when all of his disciples ran. Um, so that, that's, um, 
kind of where we were. Now Jesus is getting ready to go back home from Jerusalem. And John comments a very strange thing. He says, now he had to go through Samaria. That's a very strange thing for John to say about Jesus. Because if you were a good Jew, this, you will see here this, uh, the, the, the direct route from Jerusalem to Nazareth, where Jesus was headed, was right through Samaria. So it's like G John wrote that, in, and if you didn't know the cultural background, you'd go, duh, of course. But actually, most good Jews did not choose to go that way. They went this way. They would go from Jerusalem to east of the Jordan. They'd head up that way, and then they'd go to Galilee or Nazareth. It was a lot longer, but it was a way more comfortable socially. And the issue was, of course, that this, this area was Samaria. And Samaria was a very despised breakaway group from traditional Judaism. They were so hated that to, to call some a, someone a Samaritan was like swearing at them. In fact, Jesus was actually sworn at that way. One time the Pharisees were so PO'd at him that they said, you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed. So that's like, well, you can imagine some things we'd say to people today, right? That was, that was, that was just the worst thing you could call somebody, was a Samaritan. And if... Uh, the story behind that, if you'll recall, in the Old Testament, it all started with Solomon's oppressive rule near the end of his life. Remember, he was pretty good at the start, but then he became a bit of a jerk at the end. His power and success kind of went to his head. And he started oppressing people, and people started reacting to his leadership. So by the time his son became king, Rehoboam, there was the civil war, and the northern kingdom was formed called Samaria or uh, Israel or the ten tribes. It was the northern kingdom. And uh, God had promised that he would bless them, but they kind of took things into their own hands and they developed their own religious system and their own religious center with their own gods to save the northern tribes from having to go to Jerusalem. They didn't want that reunification to occur. So there's already this division going on. And then years later when there was judgment and the king of Assyria came and deported a lot of the northern kingdom. He forcibly resettled people from all over, the, all over the Middle Eastern world into Samaria and forced intermarriage. And, and, uh, and so you had all of these Gentile uh, uh, intermarriages going on in this, in this area that we now call Samaria. And wild animals, lions and bears and Kong started attacking uh, the, the, the people of the land. And, um, and so the residents said, hey, I think we're offending the God of this land. We better, we better find out how to serve him. And so they brought a, a Jewish priest to come and teach them how to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. But even with this, they kind of developed their own religious system. So they were kind of like a, like a, like a cult, uh, you know, like a, like a breakaway group from Ju Judaism that had this... Um, you know, um, they embraced the first five books of the Bible. 
Uh, so they, they believed in the, the Torah, but they rejected the kings, they rejected the prophets, because, of course, a lot of those focused on Jerusalem, didn't they? And they didn't want that. So they kind of had their own hybrid religion. And the story that we're looking at today centers right in this area here, about halfway through Samaria, near the city of Samaria, in a city called Sychar. Sychar, many people believe, is the ancient city of Shechem. And Shechem, of course, is a very familiar city in the book of Genesis. You'll remember that a lot of histories around Shechem. Remember, Abraham offered his first sacrifice in the promised land right at Shechem. And Jacob offered a, a sacrifice uh, at, at Shechem. And it was, it was a, a place where Jacob gave his inheritance, part of his inheritance, extra inheritance, to his favorite son, Joseph. Remember that? And, and he gave this well called Jacob's Well. Now, amazingly, Jacob's Well still exists. It's still in the world today. Uh, this well uh, wasn't spoken of much uh, in the Old Testament. We, of course, have it mentioned in the Gospels. But amazingly, this well still exists today. It's in a place called Nablus, which is in the West Bank, Palestinian territory of Israel. And it's about nine feet in diameter, about 135 feet deep. And it's today enshrined by an Eastern Orthodox monastery called, what's the monastery called? Jacob's Well. And there it is, kind of enshrined nowadays. But apparently, same thing still, 135 feet deep, same diameter. So this all exists in the world today, and our story is uh, based right, you can see Sychar right at the top there, and then I'm circling two mountains. One's called Mount Gerizim, and the other one's called Mount Ebal. Does anybody remember Gerizim and Ebal from the book of Deuteronomy, where God told Moses when they get into the promised land, I want half of you to stand on one side and half of you to stand on Mount Ebal, the other's on Mount Gerizim, the people on Mount Gerizim are to announce blessings, the blessings of the covenant. And the people on Mount Ebel are to, are to announce the warnings or the curses of breaking the covenant. So it was a very sacred place, a lot of history there. So they had a lot of good reason for their... Uh, so they'd be like JWs today. JWs kind of look Christian, but they obviously don't, they have some doctrines that are not orthodox. They don't believe that Jesus is the creator, that he's God. Uh, salvation, there's kind of a, a way that Mormons would be similar, I think. So I think just giving you an example of, of kind of the religious comparison, that's what the Samaritans would have been like to the Jews. And by the way, uh, similar to the Muslims that live in the Holy Land today. The Muslims, of course, claim similar spiritual heritage to Israel from Abraham. They, they, they claim to come from that same spiritual root. So that those similar things are going on, which, as we know, can breed all kinds of hostilities, similarities notwithstanding. And so we see the stretch that Jesus... Uh, made to go through Samaria. He could have gone around and it would have been more socially comfortable, but he made the stretch to go through Samaria to do the, the uncomfortable thing, and so we come to our text. It says that he had, got, he had to go through Samaria, in verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. And by the way, we're not 100% sure that Sychar or Shechem 
But if it's not Shechem, it's very close. So it's, it's, it's in, the, in the area. It's near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, I want us to just imagine the setting here. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling, and um, I've, I've traveled that route uh, from Galilee to, to Jerusalem. It's not short if you're walking. It's, it's about two to three hours if you're driving on a bus. So it's, it's probably a good two to three days walk, long walk, a lot of walking. And so Jesus is tired He's bone-weary. And I, I, I've, just in this past week, experienced points of weariness in my own spirit and mind and body, where there's this combination of spirit weariness and physical weariness, because spiritual weariness comes from giving out, doesn't it? If you, you, even though God is eternal, he's made us human. And so even when we give out, in Jesus' humanity, when that woman with the issue of blood touched him, it says virtue went out of him. And he had to be replenished. So I think the weariness that Jesus was experiencing was not just physical. He had just poured himself out in Jerusalem and was coming home. He was tired from the road trip. You ever been tired from a road trip? Yeah, don't. Don't talk to me after we're done in lower post for a few days, right? That's, that's literally, I feel that bone weariness after a mission. Because you've just poured out and poured out and you pray for people and you love them and you listen to them. And, and, and this is what he'd been doing. But not only that, there was the physical weariness and it's noon, so there's blood sugar issues. When I go for a walk in the mornings now, I always have to bring a banana because I, I have this blood sugar issue and I get dizzy and I get weak. And it's, it's amazing the difference that a banana will, will make. Just, just doing it on that walk. So, so the blood sugar issue, there's physical weariness, there's spiritual weariness. And he's thirsty. That, there's, he's dehydrated. It's hot. It's probably sometime after Easter, after the Passover. So he's, he's probably really, uh, it's in the Middle East at that time of year, it's, it's getting hot. Like it's like our high summer at that time of the year for them. And it was about noon. So Jesus is God in human flesh. And yet, he's vulnerable. He's weak. He's tired. So this woman comes. And very strangely, she's alone. This was very unusual because women would usually come for water. And they'd all... all often make it a social thing. They'd come in the morning or, or in the evening, but for a woman to come at noon was very unusual. In the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. So she was likely a woman who was despised socially by her village, and she avoided the social contact by coming at noon. And Jesus shocks her by speaking to her because Jewish men did not speak to any woman in public. First of all, rabbis were not allowed to speak to women in public. But Jewish men 
were only allowed to speak to a woman if she was with her husband. So he shocked her, first of all, by speaking to her as a Jew to a Samaritan. Because Jews were even forbidden to eat from dishes that had been touched by a Samaritan. And he asked her for a drink of water. So he shocked her that way, but then he, sp- then he shocked her also because as a man, he spoke to her as a woman. And so there was all kinds of prejudices and preconceptions that were barriers to what was actually normal. It was actually normal in the Middle East, if you were a guest, to ask the host for help. But all of these prejudices and barriers had, had s- submerged our common humanity. So the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Double trouble. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And if you have your Bible with you, there's probably a footnote there that says that that phrase can be translated, for Jews do not even eat from dishes touched by Samaritans. So there's actually an alternate translation there. Verse 30, or verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now already, there's this reading between the lines that's, that's happening here. Because Jesus, it's like he's saying to her, you know, I really look weary, I really look tired, and I am. I'm exhausted, and I'm thirsty. But I am a picture of your life. You're thirsty. You're so weary. You're so tired of life. And I have some bubbly water for you, not water that sits still, but like Lynn Creek, that is white water, bouncing, running, flowing, full of life. It's drinkable. So she, she starts feeling really thirsty. Verse 11, so the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. So there's two two levels of conversation going on already. They're talking about the well. They're talking about physical water. But already, both of them are kind of moving into another kind of water. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, woman, the life you've been living, the the lifestyle you've had, you keep drinking that way, you're going to keep getting thirsty. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So two levels that's going on. 
On one hand, she's going to be nice not to have to come back to this well in the heat of the day. But on another hand, she's going, you know, the life that I'm living, it'd be nice if I didn't have to live that way anymore. Is there another way? And I'm stuck in a life I don't want to be in. I'm lonely. I'm an outcast. This woman was, was part of a despised and rejected people. And this despised and rejected people despised and rejected her. Double rejection. I'm fragmented and disconnected. How wonderful if there was another way to live. If there was another way than the way that I'm living. And I'm just so overwhelmed and moved by how Jesus was with this woman. There's so much here for us as the church in the city of Vancouver. Because this woman is our city. This, our city is full of women at the well. Whether men or women, the city is full of, of people just like her. Fragmented, disconnected. Vancouver's been, on one hand, voted one of the most livable cities in the world, and yet it's one of the most lonely cities in the world. So he told her, um, go call your husband and come back. Now Jesus thought, well, maybe we should follow convention here. We've been conversing for 10, 15 minutes. Might be a good idea. Is that what he's doing? Well, maybe. That was his cover. But there's more going on here, isn't there? She says, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Isn't that sweet? What I love about this is this despised, rejected, shamed woman, Jesus, first of all, honors and respects her by asking her for water. Saying, so you have something for me. I need you to help me right now. What if our posture was like that towards the world? towards the women at the well, towards the broken ones around us, that in spite of every shame and abuse and sin that they've ever committed, we still say to them, you are still in the image of God. There's something of God about you that you can contribute, you can give to me. That just open the door for this conversation to happen. So much of our evangelism shuts down conversation. And Jesus, I love the way that he just even affirms her telling the truth. You're quite right, what you just said. Even though she was being deceptive, we know she was. We know there was a bit of a cover that was going on. Right? But he's still affirming. And I, I, I want to say this. He is exuding acceptance for this woman. Acceptance is not approval. Acceptance is not, I agree with everything you're doing. Acceptance recognizes there may be things this person is doing that are self-destructive and hurting other people. But it's this posture that you are in the image of God 
and you have something to give. God loves you, and he's for you, and he's invested everything he had for you. So Jesus goes to the heart of the matter by asking her about her husband for a reason. He tenderly lays bare the secrets of her heart that she was so successfully covering up to this point. He, the, the, all of a sudden, with one question, all the dark days of grief, of disappointment, disillusionment, and despair, and pain, by, in the words, I have no husband, was far more than just the physical being married to a man. It had to do with, I have no one who really cares about me, who thinks about me, who's watching out for me. I'm on my own. Isn't that the cry of our generation? Who's looking out for me? And so the thirst came. Because if you're going to drink, you have to be willing to admit you're thirsty. The thirst came to the surface. Her hunger, her thirst, came right to the fore. There's a woman, Lori Cutter, who, who wrote an article, The New Face of Infidelity, that young millennial women who have been married seven years or less are one of the fastest growing demographic groups committing adultery. These are women who didn't grow up with a dad in the home or never had a healthy relationship with their father or their stepfather. They've never had a male mentor. So there's a huge hole in, in these women's hearts. A man comes along, sometimes many times older, and begins listening to them, and they just cave. 50% of this married demographic are children of divorce themselves. They haven't seen a model or a practice of healthy, covenantal, lasting marriages. If it gets bad, you cut and run. They also carry with them attachment injuries from a mom or dad who abandoned them or broke up the family. And she notes that these injuries demonstrate themselves in a marriage in three ways. Either one, the spouse either becomes too clingy, pushing the other person away, or too cautious, afraid to get too close because they might get hurt, or too chaotic, too restless to be tied down or commit long term. And we have a whole generation that's just thirsty for living water because of the fragmentation and the brokenness from this kind of upbringing. And so Jesus goes on, or, or the woman goes on, Sir, after he talks about her, her, her five husbands, and we're not sure, totally, maybe some of them were deaths, husbands that died. Some of them maybe were divorces. We don't know for sure. Whatever it was, it was painful. And it was so painful that she couldn't be in a covenantal relationship now. So whether it was grieving or whether it was just betrayal or whether it was just loss, it, there was loss. There was loss. There was pain. She was a broken woman. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, which was not an impolite way of saying it back in those days. It would be today. Uh, Jesus replied, believe me, 
A time is coming when you will worship the Father. Isn't it interesting he brings up the Father? She didn't mention the Father, but he brings up the Father. You will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. It's so amazing how people will hide their brokenness behind a Bible study, behind a religious conversation, a theological discussion. Now, there's nothing wrong with a Bible study, nothing wrong with a theological discussion. But she, she did what Adam did when God said, Adam, where are you? And Adam fled and he ran and he put on fig leaves and her fig leaves were her Bible study. Her fig leaves said, Jesus, let's have a Bible study. Let's talk about theology. She's trying to, trying to you know, hide from this thing that he's just mentioned because this frightening thing has just happened. All of a sudden, she realizes that she is standing before someone who knows her. And all that she's ever known before in her life when somebody really knows her is shame, is rejection. That's all she's ever known. And so there's this terror. When you feel terror, you hide, you run. So she says, is it better to worship at this mountain, Gerizim? Remember I mentioned Gerizim earlier? The, it's quite likely that the Mount Gerizim was right within view of that well. That it was right there. They could see it. Not, not only was Gerizim there, but during the time of Nehemiah, there was this split that happened because remember some of the Samaritans tried to help Nehemiah rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple, and they rejected them. So one of the priests in that time married a son of, of, of one of the Samaritans, and he built this beautiful temple right at Mount Gerizim that became the temple of Samaritan worship. But during the Maccabees, remember uh, Drew talked about the Maccabees a few weeks ago? During the time of the Maccabees, they destroyed the Samaritan temple. And it was probably about 150 B.C. that this happened. They destroyed this temple and the ruins were still there. So they were probably looking at the mountains and the ruins of that temple. While, while the woman says, should we worship here on this mountain? So, so there was the whole Samaritan scene, rejection. It was rejection, spiritual rejection, social rejection, religious rejection. It just, I mean, she just read R on her forehead. That's, it was just rejection. So she says, I can see your prophet. Believe me, Jesus said, a time is coming when you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, no games. You got a father who wants you to just be real, wants you to be honest about your, your thirst, your pain. You don't have to hide behind religion anymore. I just appreciate the song set that Stephen picked out today. It was just so, so, so much about this, about just being real with God, not talking about God but talking to God, intimacy with God. That's what the Father longs for. He longs for us not to talk about Him, but with Him and to Him. Oh, I'm tired. All right, verse 22. You Samaritans worship. Now notice, notice this language. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Since so we're a little more theologically accurate here. For salvation is from the Jews, yet 
Let's move forward. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. He goes to the, the heart of the issue, the Father, the thirst. That this is the issue. This woman is longing for belonging, connection, for relationship, to be known and loved. There's this huge hole in her heart. So the woman tries another diversion. The woman said, I know that Messiah, who's called the Christ, he's coming. By the way, that was a common hope that the Jews and the Samaritans had, was Messiah. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She goes, whew, we'll just postpone this conversation. Then Jesus declared, I, he does something, by the way, that he doesn't do with anybody else in the Gospels. He's the only person in the Gospels that he says this to. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Whoa. No hiding. No more hiding. Heart laid bare. This woman, she got a drink. She got a drink. And I love the way that Jesus just, he could have talked about all her sins and all the bad things she did, but he knew there was a deeper, deeper issue. She's thirsty. She's looking, she was just, all that sin was a, a surface of looking, a deeper issue of looking for living water, for relationship with life with God. The actual Greek there, Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you, I am. So he not only said he was the Messiah, but he declared to her that he was Yahweh, the same one that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Wow. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, I, I find this interesting. She thought, you know what? He asked me for a drink of water and he's, he still didn't get one. We got into such a conversation. Maybe I'll just give him a chance to have a drink. Or maybe she was just so excited she forgot it. I don't know. But she went back into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Jean Vanier describes this scene this way. Jesus meets a broken woman and gives her new life. Transformed, she's now giving life to others. Jesus meets a broken woman and gives her new life. Transformed, she gives life to others. So they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I've already eaten. I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him, did that woman get a Big Mac? What, how, how, how did he eat? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? You know, it's like April, May, harvest is in September, right? 
So he was actually probably talking about the actual time. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Isn't that how we got into St. David of Wales? Think of all the people that wept and cried and prayed before we came. And I think of that spiritually. I was talking to a group. I was asked to speak at a Bible study for West Coast. And I told them how Bob Birch, who led the Jesus movement here in the 70s, within one week, welcomed Kathleen and me to the city over lunch and blessed us. We entered into the labors of those who've sown before I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. Did you know that that saying, one sows and another reaps, is actually a cynical phrase? It was, it was a sardonic, cynical phrase. People back in those days said, you do all this work and then somebody else gets the benefit. It was like a, uh, an expression of despair. It was like an expression that Life isn't fair, and no matter what I do, it's not going to make any difference. Does that sound familiar? But Jesus redeems that phrase. He says, actually, it is true. One sows, another reaps, but you all enjoy the victory together. And this little woman, she's been touched by God. She's gone back into the town. She's sowing like crazy. Guess what? In a couple of years, two or three years, Peter, you, and a guy named Philip, they're going to come to Samaria, and they're going to reap a great harvest because of all the seeds that she's sowing right now. And it happened, didn't it, in the book of Acts, chapter 8. So bitterness, cynicism, disappointment, story of my life, right? I work, and, and I've worked where I felt like everything you touch turns to gold. And then I worked for years where it just feels like you're slogging. And guess what? Jesus said it all counts. It all is making a difference. Whether you see it or whether you don't. Nothing is wasted. Dear sister or brother, are you tired today? Is there heartache? Are you disappointed or disillusioned? There is nothing wasted. There is nothing, no tear, no heartache, no heartbreak that you've suffered that is wasted. You cannot afford cynicism. You cannot afford to allow despair to set in. It all matters. It all counts because we are part of a kingdom that is advancing. And whether we see it, and some of us have to be like William Carey, where we go for seven years and we pray and we evangelize and we don't see one result. And some of us then reap the harvest of that. It all counts. So many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed two days. That's radical. A Jew staying in the Samaritan's house taking their hospitality. That's so radical. 
I just, just love that. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So God's inviting us into the greatest joy of heaven. What greater joy is there? There's more joy in heaven over one lost person found than 99 righteous who need no repentance. Who are those 99 righteous who need, don't need repentance? Could you raise your hand? I didn't think so. So there, I think there's a bit of irony there that Jesus is saying. There's more joy in heaven over one lost person who's found than the 99. I believe Jesus is inviting us into his joy to cross our comfort zone out of our comfort zones into crossing social barriers whatever they may look like and believe me it'll get uncomfortable sometimes but just remember the issue is thirst people are thirsty I need a drink they may behave in all kinds of ways that offend you and hurt you and you kind of bite your tongue sometimes but people are thirsty and so am I. So are you. Let's just keep coming to the water. So come on, Steve and Karen. Why don't you lead us in this? Let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I want to invite you to come and receive a drink. Living water. Yeah, just have a great sense of fatigue that's on some people. Um, when Gordy first started, he talked about Jesus being very tired, and I just feel like there's people that would really benefit from having others come around them and just praying the quickening power of the Holy Spirit on them. Danielle mentioned that many people were sick. Uh, people are not here today because they are ill. And uh, it's the season of flu and the season of cold. And Jesus is here to bring healing. Mm. So if you feel that fatigue, there is, you know, the Lord is here by his spirit to quicken us according to his word and by his spirit. So let's be sensitive to one another. I, I feel like there's a lot of people that are, are real givers here in this congregation, in this family. And they give and give and give. And they, and they just, let's just stop and receive today. Let's just really receive from the Holy Spirit. Right? So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. I'd like to just invite some of you to come and just stand around the front, just facing us here. If, you, if you'd like prayer, if you just need replenishing, if you need refreshing, maybe we could all stand together. I just felt the Lord say that we were supposed to lay hands on people today for that weariness, for that thirst. Some of you, it's... It's just been that you've been given out so much and it's just like you feel like you've got nothing less left to give. And 
We sang about the everlasting God who neither faints or grows weary. And from the outset of this service, I've been sensing just his... When we end, he begins. When we end, he begins. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Lord, we need that living water. We come to you, the fountain. The fountain that you said is now within us. A well of water springing up unto everlasting life. Spring up, O well. All who are thirsty, Jesus cried out at the last great day of the feast. All who are thirsty. There's very few times where scripture says he cried out. But that was one time he cried out. All who are thirsty, come to me and drink. He must have just seen the wretchedness, what the religious bondage was doing, what the sin was doing. People were religious weary, sin weary. And his heart broke and he just cried out, come. I have a, I have a well of water for you. It'll be within you. I'm going to put it in you. It'll spring up. Or maybe it was in you, but the enemies come and kick dirt into it and plugged it up. And I'm going to, I'm going to free you up again. Your freedom. I'm going to remove the shame and the guilt and the frustration and the cynicism and the weariness and the rejection, the pain. I'm going to remove it. Holy Spirit, come. We invite you, Lord. It's not that you're not here. You're, you're closer than our breath. You've been here before we ever got here. But we say yes to your invitation, Lord, today. Thirsty. 